0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. The short-term rental market has exploded and investment returns in this asset class can be much higher than other residential real estate. Today's guest, Ryan Scott, managing director of Aspire Fund, is developing tiny home communities in opportunity zones with short-term rentals. It's an incredible way for investors in 1031 exchanges to defer taxes and get incredible returns on their investment. So today we have with us a gentleman that is doing Fascinating, fascinating stuff in the world of tiny homes hitting a uh, affordable housing just at the perfect, perfect, perfect time as bigger homes are getting so out of range of your average person, doing them in opportunity zones, just brilliant, brilliant niche and uh, super smart guy for this business. And that's why I've been so excited to have on the show Ryan Scott, who's the managing director of Arizona's leading boutique qualified opportune zone fund, Aspire. Ryan, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Great, sir. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here.
0: You got it. I feel like I kind of stumbled through through that intro, but thanks for bearing with. So before I ask you like the obvious questions which are, which I will ask later, so how in the world did you get into such a smart thing? Before I ask that, I, I know you went to Duke. And so before that, uh, you know, where did you grow up? Are you an East Coast guy? Where are you from originally? Yeah.
1: Yeah, California Bay Area guy, grew up in the East Bay there, really a, a wonderful, wonderful childhood. And then went to, to undergrad at Davidson College, now famous for Steph Curry, but we did exist before him. And uh, that was in, in North Carolina, went to, went to work and consulting back on the West Coast and eventually uh, went back to Duke for business school.
0: We didn't cover this earlier, but I'm in Alameda, where, where in the East Bay are you from?
1: Oh, right on. Yeah. we Alamo Danville area
0: the high, the high rent district.
1: yeah, no, it probably wasn't cheap then when we were growing up. We didn't know. and now it's it's certainly not a walk in the park there. but yeah, it's a really great, great area for family.
0: Yeah, fantastic place to grow up for sure. Uh, okay, and and now you are in you're in Arizona. i I'm assuming, but am I correct or no? no,
1: you're you're spot on. So we're in Gilbert, which is about you know, fifteen minutes from from Scottsdale and Phoenix. It's a great suburb here in the East Valley.
0: Got it. So so I, I'm the guy that asks the uh, inappropriate personal questions. And so are you LDS?
1: So good question. It's prominent around here. My wife's family is. We are not active members, but I know a lot more about the LDS church than before I, I moved here. Really actually a wonderful family.
0: Good Got week. it. You know what? I'd never met any Mormons until like 20 years ago and I came across them in business starting 20 years ago and I had literally less than zero preconceived notions. It was a complete blank <clears> slate, <throat> slate for whatever reason, right? And uh, I will tell you that my interactions with Mormons, I hope that's not politically correct to say Mormons opposed to LDS, but yeah, hi, think- is, is it politically incorrect? No, no, I think it's okay. Got it. Have been, frankly, just absolutely wonderful. And I just find them to be the nicest people. They tend to, I'm Jewish, there tends to be a lot of similarities, like, um, you know, emphasis on education and um, that kind of thing. The other thing that's interesting is that, and this is 100% subjective, but there's something about Mormons that, in my mind, most of them that I've met are all incredibly good-looking. (laughs)
1: there does seem to be an inordinate number yes they've got the the blonde blue eyes piece going my my wife and and our kids now certainly do too so yeah it doesn't it doesn't hurt and a a bit of a kind of shrewd business mindset you know that the the lds church has a war chest that's that's enormous you can actually look it up it's 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 actually egregiously large And, and a good mindset i think from some of their teachings, which are about you know have enough saved away just in case something happens, so it kind of permeates down. in, in, in the same way, I grew up you know half Jewish as well, and Jewish are shrewd as well, um, and, and go to business. I didn't realize that was a, kind of a moniker and kind of true on the on the Mormon side also.
0: You know, I didn't want to say it, Ryan, but that's exactly what I was. That's exactly what I was kind of hinting at. This, <laughs> this, simil- <Yeah. laughs> maybe you picked up on that. The similarities between uh, we Jews and Mormons. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> I just left. I just left it at education. And but yes, and sure.
1: you, yeah. <laughs> My grandma would say the good-looking piece too, but I don't know about that.
0: She, she's uh she was a big Jewish
1: proponent, so yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but we Jews are not known for like being great looking per se, you know, I would be willing to sacrifice. This is so politically incorrect, but like unbelievably so, but it's my podcast is that I would be willing to sacrifice easily 10 IQ points on the average Jewish woman. If we could add like 20 points to how good looking they are. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll steer clear but good, good, good for you for being able to barter though yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh my god, this is going down a rabbit hole Okay, so I know you are And the other thing is cool about what you're doing Is that you're doing this You still have a job I think you're at IBM And so you're like hustling, man You're doing this nights and weekends Is that correct? And if so, what are you doing at If it's IBM, what are you doing?
1: Sure. So, so I have worked in you know, business transformation consulting at Accenture and IBM for twenty years, and so now lead big projects for large, you know, Fortune one hundred companies, um, and you know, have dabbled throughout the years of going full time in the real estate. Have done it certainly much more than nights and weekends permeating into my days for, for a long time. And you know, there's just a lot of pros to doing both. And so I constantly think about um, shifting and doing real estate full time. But there's a lot of benefits in the in the stability, in the network, you know, in the financing that. As long as I'm not feeling like I'm held back in what I could achieve on the real estate side, the stability has been valuable, right? And we'll see how that goes. You know, it's kind of year by year, but we continue to to reevaluate all the time, to be honest with you.
0: You know, if I'm projecting, you know, my own sensibilities, which that's what humans tend to do, I'm guessing that IBM just pays you too damn much money for you to cut loose right now and have that...
1: It's an interesting concept, right? If if they're listening, it's certainly not too much, but (laughs) it's, it's not enough to commit to it and let the real estate go for sure. Right, but it's not so little that it it would be missed, right? And for many years, honestly, I mean, in the consulting group, it was just so fun to travel around the world that I I would have made I don't know if I would have accepted less money, but but I really enjoyed the lifestyle. You know, before me and my wife got married and we would travel all around, and so that was a big part of it. Um, You know, now not so much. I'm I'm not so excited about that having a family anymore. But but that was also a benefit, right? And it gave the Ability to take, take more risks um, and, and not have to worry that, that you'd strike out. But at the same time, let's be honest, right? You're not going to blow a startup up while you have another job. You really do have to commit. So there's a conscious decision about this being a, a large parallel side hustle rather than this is the end all be all um, until we found exactly what we wanted to do and and throw all our chips on the table.
0: All right, man. Fair fair enough. Are you still doing that? Well, I guess with COVID, certainly not. But I guess even pre-COVID, were you still traveling as much as you were, you know, way back when?
1: Pre-COVID, yes. You know, which could be, you know, 75% of the time. And yeah, you know, some international, mostly domestic. And then COVID was, was just quite timely for, for, for me and my family, we we were able to keep working, but, but not travel as much. And so that was all good.
0: Well, thanks for bearing with the uh, interrogation on your personal <laughs> life. Good. Yeah. What leads you to what appears to be just such a super, super smart niche?
1: yeah so if we go back a bit like a lot of folks i got into you know just single family rental investing was a big fan of a, another podcast the real wealth network worked with kathy fedke and her team and was buying small single family homes outside of where i lived where the numbers were better learned and kind of cut my teeth there rich dad poor dad all that stuff um can't think the book enough slowly built up some small properties, was learning, making smaller mistakes, Um, and then moved to San Diego, was renting and really didn't want to rent, as you can imagine, understanding, you know burning money that way. So started to look around to what could I buy, not having a ton of money that I could then maybe rent out if I, at the time, (laughs) split with my current girlfriend, which I was worried about, or had to go away for work. Needed to change, right? I didn't want to buy a forever home that only made sense if I was living in it. I was just bought into that hardcore. And so after looking around for a while in San Diego, not a lot makes sense there, but it was around the time of Airbnb. And I was renting out my condo when I would travel for work during the week. And so, you know, Monday to Thursday, I'd rent it out to someone, come home. It was, it was outstanding, right? So what turned out to be the most financially viable purchase was instead of some smaller condo for 200 grand was a a million dollar triplex by the beach and so that's how i got into what is it long-term led to this which is you know short-term rentals with you know kind of creative financing creative property types so used an fha loan got a big loan started renting out my property while i was traveling and then the other two units used a management company it was very early days for airbnb and the management companies back then you know they just were more traditional right they were they were handing people keys they were signing pieces of paper all sorts of stuff that is just not the the millennial airbnb way right so eventually fired the property manager said i can do this myself hired some virtual assistant overseas got a cleaning crew and just from there built um, Surfcomer Vacation Rentals, which was um, my own portfolio and portfolio of you know neighbors and other local folks that that heard about me in in Mission Beach and Pacific Beach and Ocean Beach. And so while I was you know traveling for work, that business was was growing. It was a really wonderful time for Airbnb. And so this is maybe twenty twelve to twenty seventeen or eighteen. Around that time, you know, started traveling a lot to Arizona. Eventually, got married, moved to Arizona. It was hard to to run the business separately, and quite frankly, I did not think the market could keep going up. Right, so I thought I was smart to sell back in 2019, and and it just didn't seem there was any way that that couldn't be smart. Now it turns out COVID was going to come, and they were going to continue going up, and and the whole world's upside down. But but still, so at that point. Of selling these maybe three or four million dollar portfolio with with a fair amount of cap gains the issue is what do you do with all of that cap gains and i had done 1031 exchanges for a long time and that's certainly a wonderful opportunity but at the time you know saw a post on linkedin about opportunity zones and the tax break of a lifetime and i'm a big fan of of aggressively optimizing around tax let's say taking advantage of everything you can and so got very interested in what does this mean what do the opportunity zones mean and that's the specific time that i was wrestling with a big capital gain and so you know the, the opportunity zone program in a nutshell we can talk about it more certainly if you want basically says if you've got a big capital gain if you put that into an opportunity zone fund You can delay paying the taxes and then they'll reduce the taxes a little bit, but you can delay paying the taxes till 2026 and then whatever the fund buys and invests in, when they sell it after 10 years, there's no capital gains. And so, and you get all your money back and you're done. The big difference there is that if it's a 1031 exchange, you don't get access to any of the funds eventually, you have to keep rolling them over. So... And it's a long story, long, so to speak, but split it in between a, a couple 1031 exchanges and building my own opportunity zone fund after evaluating potentially investing with others. So then, you know, we get to what do we do with this opportunity zone fund? And we can talk about that. And that's how we got to Tiny homes.
0: Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. When you were doing stuff with Kathy Fetke, where were those single family homes?
1: You actually still have one in Pittsburgh and one in Memphis, but they were all in Memphis when I started. It was actually i was young i didn't have any money really we i put the first two on a credit card basically i took an advance from the credit card which was ten thousand we were buying them with hard money and a thousand dollars down rehabbing them and then refinancing them and so it really was no money down but i you know i just didn't have the stomach for potentially there being, you know, months where we didn't make any money. I just didn't have the the stomach to stick to it. Otherwise, you know, it would have been crazy returns if I would have kept them.
0: How many did you have at one point?
1: Five and I think one in in Phoenix or one in Pittsburgh.
0: You're a hustler, man. I mean, you are a hardworking hustler, specifically that you've done all this while having a full-time job. Dude, that's impressive. I mean, and to have the stomach, by the way, to be rehabbing homes, you know, 2,500 miles away is God only knows how you manage that dealing with contractors at that distance.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll take the compliment, but the, the system was set up to be fairly turnkey. So, you know, an operator in, this, in the location would find the homes, would do the rehab and would manage the home. And so, obviously, they're taking a, a skim there uh, rather than you do it yourself. But it's also not palatable, or to your point, to do it yourself for a lot of reasons, including you get taken advantage of. So, you know, that that's how it worked with that group. And obviously, Kathy's business model was to you know take a little bit for putting you in touch with them, and that that was absolutely fine for where I was in the learning curve of the real estate stuff.
0: Well, you know, look, it still took a lot of courage to even do that because. You could have viewed things cynically and said, well, this this, this thing could fall apart. Well, deferring the capital gains, you were saying that if you invest in an opportunity zone, you don't have to pay any gains until 2026. But then you said, and this is where I just got confused, Mm -hmm. you said when the fund sells 10 years down the road, you don't have to pay any gains, I guess. Was that gains on that you would make in the fund, but then you correct, but, okay. But you'd still have to pay the the original gains of the property that you got out of
1: exactly. Yep, yeah, but you've obviously you're playing with the government's money for six years until 2026, allowing that to be you know, the cost basis to grow and then, and then yeah, you need to pay. And, and that's that's something that everybody needs to pay on their own. It's not that the fund pays it. A lot of funds are looking to distribute capital because all their investors need to pay at that point. But it's on an individual basis rather than the fund. You know, the fund's job is to take the capital that was put in, not return it for 10 years and, and put it to work, right? In a way that maximizes the benefits of this program. And the benefits of the program aren't to offload a bunch of cash every year, because that's, you know, going to be less tax advantage. The, the, the best way to do it is to, to put some leverage on there and have something that's that's steady and is going to appreciate over the long term. And so that's, that's
0: really the idea for us as well. I got it. So, taking us to current, the company is the company slash fund is Aspire. And tell me, and I and I know you've got property up in Flagstaff. I actually was there about a month and a half ago and stayed at an Airbnb prior to you and I getting to know one another here. But tell me, give me the specifics on uh, you know Aspire.
1: Sure. So. You got interested in in Flagstaff and, and the greater Northern Arizona region because you know half the money went into this Opportunity Zone fund and then we raised other money but you know half I just did a ten thirty one exchange I was really into vacation rentals and so we, we bought a vacation rental in Flagstaff one in Sedona and one in in Williams which is actually closer to the Grand Canyon and we'll come back to Williams in a second so. Those operated really well. And so when it t- came time to do something with the fund, you know, it, it, prices were getting to be a bit more frothy down here in, in the Phoenix area. But more so, there was a lot of attention in metro areas for the opportunity zone. So, for example, there's an opportunity zone in the heart of Mesa, you know, Mesa outside Phoenix and some downtown Phoenix. And there's some right in the heart of, of Scottsdale, Arizona as well. Obviously, that makes a lot of sense, right? There's an opportunity zone there. Everyone loves going there. But that means it's quite frothy. Uh, the competition from very big firms is significant. And you're not going to sneak in a purchase that doesn't price in the fact that it's an opportunity zone. Up north, and I, this is the case in a lot of other places we're looking at as well. There's both more land that's in an opportunity zone because it's done via census tract. They're much larger. And there's less focus up there from some of the bigger um, funds that, you know, want to do a, a sexy hotel or, or apartment um, or office building, right? And so the idea is to go where there's less competition and then to think about what makes most sense there. Rather than, okay, we just do apartments, this is what has to be. When we looked up there, given my background, you know, a short term rental play based on the fact that Grand Canyon is up there and I know it works made a lot of sense, right? So, okay, so now we're into short term rentals in Northern Arizona. Does it make sense to then just build some homes? You know, with with this program, it's important people know you can't just buy an existing home and operate it, you have to invest. An equivalent amount to what you purchase the property for. There's a little bit of a nuance there we can talk about, but but really, it did, it's not going to work for a fixer upper. It needs to be you know kind of ground up development or significant improvement is, is what the word is. So then you said, okay, so we need to get land. So does that mean we're going to build a subdivision and building a home, If you're just renting it out short-term, it's going to take a long time for that to pencil out. So we tried to think about something more creative. The point here comes to the short-term rental market in tiny homes is significant. People are looking for unique types of stays. You can actually search on Airbnb for a unique stay, right? There's things like yurts and everything else. But the tiny homes are very efficient to build. People like them to buy as well, and they're inexpensive, right? So if you think about what's going to be the most bang for my buck in terms of developing a property I can rent out, the numbers um, were more attractive for the tiny homes rather than building, you know, a five dollars or $600,000 home and then renting it out. We can talk about the numbers, but that's, that's kind of where the idea went.
0: What's the uh, size of these these homes? Sure. So, you know,
1: tiny home means a lot of different things. If somebody's getting into it, they should clarify with whoever they're talking to what do you really mean. So, some people say for tiny homes that's um, uh, just an actual like a, a, a small home. I'm trying to think of the word that's that's less than 400 square feet, but it's permanently affixed to the ground that is a a small, tiny home, a park model would be the word that people are used to. Those have been around a long time, small manufactured home. But then there's also tiny homes on wheels, which are distinct in that they're not permanently affixed and they are registered with the the DMV rather than, than HUD. And so there's a little bit more flexibility in how you build them and less cost in terms of the infrastructure. So to answer your question, they're, they're between 200 and 300 square feet, anywhere from a studio to kind of two, two bedrooms with air quotes. And we're actually building some custom that are more of like a work-life balance, you know, remote work option where we have a bedroom and an office. You know, they have full kitchen and everything and they're gorgeous. So,
0: Okay. How much do they cost to build?
1: Yeah, so we use a builder um, locally uncharted tiny homes and there there are others as well, but I really like Mike and his team there. I think they they could range from about 60,000 to 100,000, I would say is is the approximate. You could go really over the top with how you customize them, but they've got some off the shelf ones as well. so, about there, there is some financing for them for 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 retail customers, not not as much there for for the commercial side like us, but there is that option,
0: okay, and then what do they rent for? yeah, so you, you just take the the
1: first project we did to kind of understand the the cap rate and, and the 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 return so w- when we put them in they're they're put in with RV hookups. So if you think about doing it yourself, you're trying to get a pad that has RV hookups, you know, sewer, water, electricity. And so what we did is we had lots that basically were 60,000 fully improved. So we got 60,000 for the lot, a give or take, maybe 100,000 for the tiny home we're in them for 160, maybe 175. And we're renting for about one 25, you know, maybe some weekday days 100, some weekend nights, you know, 175, average maybe 125-130. Depending on how you how you're doing and your manager, maybe 70% occupancy. So I don't have the numbers in front of me, but but we're talking about 3000 bucks a month. And 3000 bucks a month on a property that was 175k is really good the way I was taught to think about it as a kind of rule of thumb, if you're making 1% exactly. a month,
0: exactly. You know,
1: anyway, th- that was the big deal for me is if you look at that rent to value ratio, if you're building a home, it's not going to be the same as this, right? And so that was, the, that was the main impetus.
0: What, what's the average length of stay? P- probably two days.
1: Um, we get a lot of folks coming just for the weekends. And then certainly we're happy to have people stay longer but where this is in the tourist area
0: uh, they're shorter shorter stays. And so roughly speaking you've got these things and I and I know this isn't exact but it sounds like I mean if I'm taking 3000 a month at 125 and I'm sure it's not 3000 exact every month and I'm sure again it varies depending on season and is it weekend is it weekday but roughly it sounds like you've got these things rented north of 20 days a month no yes Wow. And how, how do you deal with the management? So I certainly dabbled with, should I do
1: it myself, having having had that background. But I, having had that background led me to realize, I mean, you need someone who's going to do it full time. So I I found uh, a local manager, her name's Kathy Duncan, her company's KD Prime. They... they are a great operation in, in Sedona and, and Flagstaff and Williams, where we were. And she's done a great job. She, she does my actual properties and homes as well. And the tiny homes, you know, she had the the right attitude of, you know, let me learn more about these and figure it out. What do people like? How could I do a good job here? Um, and we were the first ones that she had taken on um, for sure. And now, you know, they've done a great job to, to adapt to the differences, which isn't a lot but yeah how, you know how do we market them what do people want you know and, and they do soup to nuts right so they they do all the marketing cleaning guest relations
0: everything what do they charge they charge uh, like 10 or 12% or something like that or
1: no no so the vacation rental market is is usually between 20 and 30% because they're doing significantly more than a normal property manager and so you know, we have our own arrangement, but I think between 20 and 30% is what's reasonable to expect from a, a property manager for vacation rentals.
0: That makes sense. Okay. And thanks for bearing with my just like, just fundamental, you know, one one questions. And then, so if you then essentially all of these properties are in a fund? So the ones that were a 1031 exchange
1: are just in but they're outside the fund. There was no reason to move those funds in, into an opportunity zone because there were no taxes as we exchanged a uh, property in San Diego for a property in Sedona, let's say. Okay. But all of the, the, the projects we've done in the fund are still in there and they just operate and the money goes back into the fund as, as we go. And so, you know, we both have existing properties that are operating and then we have <laughs> new projects that we're, we're looking to,
0: to put in place. Got it. And how many properties in aggregate across these markets are in the fund?
1: So we have one core property that's been developed. And then we probably own 20 other parcels that we have various stages of entitlements or or design and engineering going on.
0: I see. Who's the we? Yeah. So
1: I, I often say we. So the we is me with respect to running the fund, but I could, you know, have a team, you know, my agent up in Flagstaff who we work with every day, uh, an engineering team, at, you know, and the, the legal team up there. None of them are actually part of the company. The company is is lean and, and mean, and that helps with our expenses. But, you know, the, the team is the larger group that helped help me be successful up there.
0: Okay. Still, I'm still, you know, kind of somewhat uh, mesmerized by the fact you're doing this and still have a full-time job, my, my hats, and, and then you have twins to boot. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that <laughs> no, on the episode, fun. but holy cow. And then opportunity zone, what constitutes an opportunity zone?
1: Yeah, good question. And back to your previous point, I, honestly, I read 4-Hour Workweek, the Tim Ferriss book, and I think for better or worse, sometimes worse, got a uh, really obsessed with the idea of trying to leverage your time, using other folks, outsourcing what you can, and that success is kind of being really lean and mean uh, internally. And so that's just been the idea. Neither of the companies have been built out with a lot of employees on purpose in that way. So we'll see how that continues. so what constitutes an Opportunity Zone? It's important to know why the, the program was invented. It was part of the T- Tax and Jobs Act, I think, of 2017 or 18. And the purpose was, how do we get people who have capital gains to put them into areas that we would like to see investment and aren't getting it now, right? The, the idea, very smartly being, you know, there's people with Apple stock and Amazon stock with huge capital gains. That money's not doing anything for communities. And frankly, a lot of people would like to be out of that stock partially for diversification. They just don't want to pay the tax bill. So the plan was very clever by saying we'll designate these locations that we need funding and investment we will give some parameters about how you invest and then we'll give these benefits right and we'll let the market work itself and so that's how it was set up and then they went through a process with the governors of all the states and and the governors you know use their own teams to to make recommendations to say which census tracts do we believe should be noted as opportunity zones. And there's some rules about kind of income and other qualifications for how to recommend them to the governor and then the governor submitted them. And I'm sure there's, there's some nuances that, that I'm missing, but there was also flexibility to put in Census tracks that you would be surprised are opportunity zones, either because they met one of the criteria, but we're in the path of progress and we're going to blow up anyway, or they were adjacent to a lower income census track, but they weren't at all. And that kind of allowed them to sneak in. So there's been a little bit of controversy about that, but the answer is... They were recommended, uh, proposed by the governors. They're sealed in stone. You can't change them now. You can find them online. There's a lot of very cool maps for that to understand where where they are.
0: Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because when you said Scottsdale, I was thinking to myself, hmm, how did how does an opportunity zone wind up in Scottsdale? <laughs>
1: exactly, and so, and it's actually right in Old Town. In Old Town Scottsdale, and right by where I live in Gilbert, one of the best, you know, mile square blocks. It needs some help, but it's in the best area for for growth already. And so, you know, it is what it is. No program is going to be perfect, and obviously, I wanted to to get into those before others found out. But yeah, it is what it is. I don't think people should get too upset about it. There isn't any changing. If you're in one and you have a property there, you win, right? Because as you're selling you're theoretically going to get a, a bump. And I think that bump absolutely materializes in most markets. Some markets, I think people are still selling, not realizing that they're in one. And that's obviously where I'm trying to play.
0: Smart, man, smart. How many approximately investors do you have? What do they put in typically? What are what are investor returns roughly? What does is, what is all that look like?
1: Yeah, so... I't uh, see how much I can share. I mean, we are generally looking to to double folks money twice, right? We you know over a five year span, 2x, refinance, roll that money into another project for the next five years, and you're looking at 4x at the end. The, the fund is structured such that there's a, a preferred return to the investors. An equity, uh, a return split with, with myself as as the the GP. We have investors who put in, I, I think maybe 150k. We have some that are interested in putting in less, and case by case we can do that. But um, 150k, and then you know, some that are over over half a million. And, and I'm personally one of the largest investors as well. Got it. The, the, and the way that the funds work is, you know, there's a time frame, right? So if, you know, investors are going out to talk to funds, they'll probably find the same thing, which is that the funds open for a little while, for a year or two, and then it closes and, and it needs to close because then that's kind of a tranche of funding and it's 10 year clock starts. So then if, you know, that fund continues to raise money, so we have a second fund as well, that tranche will then need to sell later and we don't want to, you know, slow down the previous fund while we wait for the later funds to season. And so uh, a lot of them will go in tranches with their investments and you just get in where, where you get
0: in. I see. And then uh, are you at liberty to say what the preferred return is?
1: I am certainly at liberty. <laughs> you don't have to. I do, think have it, no, no. no well, it's different in both. I think it's probably six percent.
0: Is that, are you able to pay that out of cash flow or is that out of money that you raised or?
1: Well, so it it accrues. And so, you know, in the first couple of years where we're building, we're not paying it out at all, but it's it's, um, accruing, right? So it's owed to the investors in their capital account. Then as we um, start bringing in cash flow, we would pay it out through cash flow. A lot of it will be paid out at the exit which is how the investor should want it as well, right? Because the same dollar that's paid out in cash flow is going to be taxed at your ordinary income rate. What's paid out through you know, the sale of the asset after the 10 years is going to be tax free. And so you, know, you can play a bit with the leverage in that respect so that you're not you know, cash flow heavy, Early on, because you've taken on debt and you've got more leverage, and so you should have a bigger gain at the end.
0: So. Thank you for that for that explanation. Not to be devil's advocate, but you know, I'm a I'm a real estate investor, so I'm always kind of you know evaluating my options, and you know, you know how, how can I get a return and And I've thought about vacation properties. They scare me just because of the management component of it, but like you said, 20 to 30%, I guess you could say that, you know, you can get somebody that's well enough incentivized so that you could get good management. But I've, I also wondered like, what, like, do you ever worry, maybe not the right word, but lack of a better one. Do you ever worry just about the fickleness of vacation, you know, people taking vacations and, you know, let's say Flagstaff, Sedona has been hot as always. I mean, that, that people just decide, well, no, I want to be in Idaho this year and that, you'll just see, you know, fluctuations.
1: Yeah. So I think it's a really good point. There was a time when I was potentially going to do a Netflix show on vacation rentals and investing. And one of the things we were talking about back then is that people are, you know, buying places purely based on short-term rental return, which was amped up for a long time and that the property's only penciled in that situation. And for me, What I was trying to do was find places that wouldn't be a knockout investment, but if we had to shift to be a long-term rental, we could cover them. And because I think that's totally viable, not just in your example, which I think is valid that maybe the popularity of that location would shift. The regulation uncertainty is, is not insignificant. And so there was a long time in California when they ban them. They actually banned them for a couple months in San Diego. It's certainly possible that the rules change.
0: Interesting. And that's exactly kind of what I was thinking. I looked at a place, my wife and I went in May of this year. So this is being recorded at the end of December, so is seven months ago, to an MGM property. This is like way different than what you're talking about, but it was basically an MGM property that would be rented out by MGM, their company, and it was it was just it was a rental property, and um, gosh, now I'm fuzzy on the details because I want to say it was Airbnb, but I think so, yeah, that they were renting through Airbnb. And one of the concerns I did have was, gosh, there's there's somebody now basically blowing a, a leaf blower about three <laughs> inches from my ear. But anyway. Um, <laughs> what the heck was I going to say? The regulation piece. And and they assured me that Las Vegas wants as much tourism as they could possibly get. And the casinos are would love as many, you know, so that that was never going to be an option. And that was probably true. I didn't move forward with it. I For whatever reason, I, I didn't like the property, but the regulations, I guess, are always looming as a So as that a was risk.
1: more like- uh- kind of a a time chair or something that you would buy into and they would rent out for you. Pretty,
0: pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah.
1: I think there's a balance for folks that, you know, I'm not at a point where I'm going to buy a second home and then just let it sit there. I'm too obsessed with kind of rich dad, poor dad and assets need to work. And so, you know, buying a second home and having it just sit is, is losing money every month right? But buying a second home and turning it into a vacation rental and then never being able to go, which is what I've done and my, my wife gets upset about, is potentially not the right answer either. And so there's something in between where you kind of offset the you know, significant cost of a second home with some renting out and then you don't have to, to make the same sort of returns. So that's an option also. Got it.
0: Well, Ryan, how, how would one uh, get a hold of you? Sure. The
1: website's aspirefund.co. There's no M at the end. And so you can submit an inquiry there. I think there's a phone number on there as well. That's probably the best page, but, but LinkedIn, uh, you can Inspire from there. Also happy to to chat with folks, even if people are thinking about maybe starting their own and just want some advice of someone who looked at investing with others versus starting their own fund, or if people are you know interested in, in getting a tidy home or staying, you know, happy to chat. So reach out if you want.
0: Fantastic! It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Uh, likewise, likewise. Yep. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye bye.